You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. Hi, everyone, and thank you for coming down tonight. My name's Erina. I'm the program coordinator at M Pavilion. I'd like to begin this event by acknowledging the Yalakut Willam as the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet. The Yalakut the Yalakut Willam are part of the Bunurung, one of the five major na nation language groups of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their lands, their language and their ancestors, past, present and to the future. And now I'll hand over to Susie. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Book Club at M Pavilion. I'm Susie Freeman-Green, I'm the Arts and Culture Editor of The Conversation. And joining me today is Catherine Williams, Professor of Environmental Psychology in the School of Ecosystem and Forest Sciences at Melbourne Uni. Um, we're going to have a little chat first and then we will be throwing out to you guys to hopefully join in the discussion. There'll be um, a roving mic and I'm told that there'll be cheese coming out shortly also. <laughs> we're here today to talk about Richard Powers' Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Overstory. A sprawling, intense, angry and moving account of a group of people whose lives are shaped by trees and how apt it is that we're in this beautiful location to surrounded by trees as we think about them. The Overstory is a novel about a fractured planet and what we might do to fix it. It has a cast of memorable characters, from Patty, a pioneering scientist whose research is dismissed by the Academy, to Olivia, a narcissistic party girl who survives a near-death experience to become a sort of heavenly spunk slash hardline echo warrior guided by whispering beings. But the heroes of this book are the trees. In particular, a vast majestic redwood, more than 600 years old, in which two anti-logging protesters live for a year on a platform strung 200 feet above the ground. The Overstory is a novel packed with research, in particular, recent findings into the ways trees nurture and communicate with each other. It's also poetic, evoking the natural world with passages of euphoric description. In this short section I'm about to read, for those who may not have read the book, and unfortunately there are a lot of spoilers here today, um, the scientist Patty walks in a forest understory beneath towering cedar trees, hemlocks, Douglas firs and spruces with trunks as big as minivans. Clicks and chatter disturb the cathedral hush. The air is so twilight green, she feels like she's underwater. It rains particles, spore clouds, broken webs and mammal dander, skeletonized mites, bits of insect frass and bird feather. Everything climbs over everything else, fighting for scraps of light. If she holds still too long, vines will overrun her. She walks in silence, crunching 10,000 invertebrates with every step. An exposed ridge takes her down into a basin. She swings her stick before her and the temperature plummets as she passes through a thermal curtain. The canopy is a colander, stippling the beetle swarm surfaces with specks of sun. For every large trunk, a few hundred seedlings huddle in the litter. Sword fern, liverworts, lichen and leaves as small as sand grains stain every inch of the dank, downed logs. 
The mosses are themselves as dense as thumbnail forests. The first time I read the Overstory, I was in the Otways, and as I walked amid blue gums, great mountain ashes and lacy tree ferns, I felt the book was coming to life. But reading it again this week, I couldn't stop thinking of the damage to our own forests caused by the bushfires. We don't yet know the extent of the damage, but what we do know is that more than 11 million hectares of land has burned, much of it forests and national parks. The loss of species habitat will be huge. Many Australian plants have evolved to cope with fire, but experts say the fires are now happening here so often that some species, such as mountain ash, just don't have time to recover and produce new seeds between blazes. So the questions this novel raises about shrinking forests and what we can do to save them and ourselves are newly urgent. Before we open up our discussion, I'd like to ask Catherine to share her expert perspective. Um, Catherine, firstly, what did you think of this book and who was your favourite character in it? I love easy questions. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I love the book. I feel like I need to give people a disclaimer and say I'm not a uh, literary critic, so this is just like a punter's reading. Loved it, thought it was um, cleverly structured, uh, a, a very Moorish kind of read. Who's my favourite character? I'm going to have two shots at it. Um, on first, Pat, the scientist. Um, I guess as a scientist, like, wow. <laughs> She's just amazing. Um, in her, the richness of her knowledge, the originality of her thought, her passion in sharing that with people uh, and her connection with the forest that she studies. Um, but my second shot is Ray and Dot. Um, and they're actually the characters that I think are the every people. They're the ones who are not seeing the trees but who go through the most radical kind of um, change and actually start to see trees in a very deep way. Hmm. Um, Catherine, can you tell us a bit about your own background and research and how it relates to some of the themes in the book? I believe you grew up in a timber town in East Gippsland. Didn't grow up in one. Actually married uh, a forest scientist. Okay. <laughs> Went to live in Gippsland in a timber town. So in uh, a town that was experiencing a lot of conflict over forests um, and forest management over, uh, um, over the past decades. Um, and when I was there, I guess I hadn't given... Um, forests had always been part of, you know, my sense of identity for various reasons. My great-grandfather was a forester in the Black Forest, so lots of family connections. Um, but uh, I started thinking about them deeply as a young adult when I started seeing conflict over forests uh, in this timber town and started asking questions about that. And it was around that time that I started my PhD and... Um, posed a question around where this conflict came from, where did all this passion arise, and interviewed people um, from right across Victoria who were connected to forests in some way. So four-wheel drivers, uh, loggers, uh, hunters, uh, people who were uh, protesting in forests, uh, field naturalists, tried to really cover a range of perspectives. And what really gripped me was not the conflict views but the similarity. It was um, learning that they were talking about the forest as something magical, as like a cathedral, um, really using spiritual language and that's where I went with my PhD then was to study uh, those transcendent moments in forests. 
That's fascinating. Um, and I think there's that real sense of transcendence in the forest in the overstory. Uh, one tree at one moment is uh, described as a living god. Um, and um, obviously this is something that our own indigenous people have that kind of connection too with trees. Um, the Conversation actually published a really interesting article a couple of weeks ago by Indigenous geographer Vanessa Kavanagh in which she described the loss of a grandmother tree to, to bushfire in her garden. The side of this tree with its crown removed, she wrote, was a deep hurt of losing someone far older and wiser than me. This tree was part of the kinship networks connecting her to country. Um, the other thing I wanted to ask you about um, was what was it like for you reading this novel given your um, research and the article you've previously written for us on the phenomenon of plant blindness? Um, could you tell us a little bit about that research and uh, the significance of this idea and then what it was like reading a book that puts trees so much at the centre of the narrative? Um, so I'll get... I'll get to plant blindness a bit slowly, if you don't mind. Oh, yeah, take your time. <laughs> but I think, I think as an environmental psychologist, when I talk to my students about, you know, how do we just unpack how people relate to physical environments? How do we um, come to value them? How do we make sense of them? What roles do they play in our lives? From a psychological point of view, I, I try to get them to think about three things. And one is to think about the places where we live and trees and forests as part of that as um, habitat. So think about what it is our environment affords us uh, for living, what makes us feel healthy. And we know that when we go to forest, you're in the hot ways, you feel good. <laughs> you know? um, but we also know that probably a lot of us would not choose to live in a rainforest. We would actually find that uncomfortable. And when we think about what it's affording us, um, there are some things that a rainforest, a deep forest, doesn't provide for us that's needed for health in life. There's a moment in the book where Pat um, it's just a tiny moment, so I wonder if it's just an environmental psychologist sees this, but she, she's in the forest and she walks out and she sees the light and, she's, and that she speaks about how other people experience forests and understands um, we need the light. So when we think about forests and who we are as creatures, as animals, um, thinking about the habitat that it creates, thinking about the good things that forests and trees provide for us, but also what we do when we don't feel safe or healthy in a place, if we're feeling afraid of bushfire, for example, or afraid of snakes and feeling that's not good for our health, then we tend to manage that by removing the vegetation. So there's, in our relationship in living with forests, there's a love and a hate at the same time, I think. So that's one thing. Mm. Sorry. Can I keep going? Yes. No, go on. <laughs> Second thing I say to my students is think about our social world and think about how we learn to interact with forests. Um, and that includes like thinking about the groups that we hang out with and how they influence the way that we think. Um, there's a lot in the book about um, activists and you get a sense of the tensions between the activists and the timber fellers, but also the the positive relationships between them um, that are occurring. And I think that those sense of being part of a group is a huge thing. We learn about forests and trees from our human communities. Um, and there's a lot going on in that book where people have got family connections to trees, the whole um, sentinel tree being um, photographed through time and this sense of connection with a family and its importance in their story or the wonderful um, 
mulberry tree in Mimi's story is, is wonderful. Um, is it Adam, who's a maple? I can't remember now. Yeah. <laughs> I think each kid in the family had a different kind of tree. That was pretty fun. So we learn to value trees. And when we think about how we learn to value trees or not, I think we can think about how we're brought up and the language that people around us use. I often start by thinking about when I taught my granddaughter, you know, in the last few years, I was part of teaching her to, to speak. I had to make myself learn, help her learn language of plants. I had to force it. Animals, so easy. <laughs> so, so easy to teach her. Um, so that's the social kind of domain. And then there's the, the third thing, which is getting, thinking about how we think. We're really powerful processing information, but we also have limitations. So psychologists are often thinking about those constraints. And the psychologist in the book is... Adam. 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 That's right. <laughs> and he's really interested in attentional blindness, he calls it. Um, and I guess that's, you know, it's a symptom of a very normal tendency among humans that when we run out of um, attention, we make shortcuts and we don't notice the things that we have, don't have to notice. So if our, have our biology, our animalness, creaturehood, is not telling us to notice plants, and if the society around us is also not telling us to notice plants, we become blind to them. Um, and Richard Power uses that language of plant blindness. And obviously that's not a good thing because then we don't value them enough. Um, yeah, we, we are observing all kinds of problems with that in terms of how we put effort towards conserving um, plants and in really practical ways, um, the skills base that we have as a society to grow plants and nurture them. Uh, we have, um, you know, in terms of horticultural expertise, we are kind of making ourselves quite poor as a society, I think, because we've stopped valuing noticing plants. Well, it might be time to ask a few of you in the audience for your thoughts on the book. Does anyone have um, a favourite character or passage or indeed tree in the overstory that they'd like to talk about? <laughs> no? <laughs> I can see someone there that might. James, do you? Okay. <laughs> Uh, I think he might need a microphone. Thanks, Susie. <laughs> Just dobbing you in. Um, I would say my favourite tree is, look, I'm really classy. It's the redwood, just because it's so big. But also because I read the story very shortly before actually going to the redwoods in California. Um, and... I kind of went there thinking, you know, they're going to be big trees. Like, they're going to be big. But I was like, they're just going to, they're still going to be trees, right? Like, they're going to look like other trees. But seeing them in real life, you suddenly realise that they are so much bigger than any normal trees. I was like, we were driving through them and, you know, they're literally twice the size of the tr normal, the trees that we're used to. And you're just kind of struck by... Like, they're like aliens. They're really like aliens. And you, you realise that, you know, we don't necessarily live on a planet that's our own. <laughs> mm. Sometimes it's owned by other things. Wow. 
And did you feel that the book captured that sense Absolutely. of their majesty? Well, yeah. Th the thing that struck me about the book is how it conveys this strangeness of the beings that we share this planet with. It's mm. like, you know, it's a reminder that, you know, we're not the owners of this place. There are other things here too. And they don't necessarily feel or think the same way that we do. Beautifully put. Mm. <laughs> Anyone else? <laughs> Well, they are in conversation with each other. Um, I'm not sure. What do you think? For me, it depends what you mean by conversation. Are we in relationship with? Uh, yes. Conversation um, could have different meanings. <laughs> I'm a psychologist and people always think that I... Um, council trees. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> council trees. <laughs> um, Catherine, I just got a question following on from that. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about the work of Peter Volleben, the German writer who talks about um, tree networks and, and I guess the way uh, they support each other. I have not read that book. <laughs> it's been on my list for a long time to read. Um, so I guess that in this, you know, in reading the overstory, I was intrigued by the level of research that was done around mm. tree communication. And it certainly uh, fitted with what I've read, you know, possibly as, you know, just through the, the more public versions of the, of the science. Um, so I get very excited about that. Um, I know that there's discomfort in some parts of the science world with uh, using some of the language around communication uh, mm. and so forth, but I think it's really um, powerful for us to understand how trees have a reality that has some parallels with us, but also is radically, radically different. And do you think that that anxiety, in a way, it's a provocation um, to the reality that we live in in societies that emphasise the extractive and the destruction of forests. So it's almost too strange to comprehend that plant intelligence and that sharing and of in plant communities. Really Very inconvenient. So I can understand that resistance. Well, that was something that you mentioned when you wrote that article for the conversation about um, plant, this idea of that we notice animals more than plants. And you, I think you said in that that um, we need to focus on the similarities we share with plants in order to connect with them and therefore value them more highly. And as you wrote, you may not remember writing this, um, like us, plants have sex, communicate and eat food. And so we have to start sort of seeing them a bit more in that way. Yeah, we have such similar realities. And I guess what, from that perspective, what really interested me about this book was that it's a story that helps us to see this very different kind of reality that has both similarities and difference in a really powerful way. I'm really interested in questions around stories and how stories uh, can change our understanding um, and the role of stories in persuading people uh, to see life through a bigger lens and think differently about our relationships with, with uh, other living beings. Um, another question I had, I don't know if anyone in the audience has a view, um, 
There's a phenomenal amount of research, clearly, in this novel. I mean, it's just um, extraordinary, really. Um, but there are times when it is piled on fairly heavily. Um, any, anyone that has read it, um, does, does anyone feel that at times it got a bit preachy? Um, it's an angry book and it's a political book, but how well does it work as, as literature? experience of the responses of this book by somebody who might be in the extractive industry. That's what I really wanted to ask too. Is there anyone here who has read the book who wasn't noticing plants and how did they respond to it? I mean, I wouldn't say I was plant blind, but they are something that we take for granted. You know, you walk through these beautiful gardens and you just, they're just there, you know, you just, you don't really look at them properly. But this book um, made me look at trees in a completely different way. And, you know, just walking around my neighbourhood, looking at these big trees that before I read it would sort of worry me because I was worried about branches falling and you know, leaves everywhere and, you know, the sort of the negative side of vegetation. But, you know, just thinking about the canopy, you know, that we need for the heat apart from anything else, you know, because I'd been thinking, why doesn't the council just plant more bushes? Bushes would be better than these big trees. <laughs> but I don't think that anymore. You know, it's ju that's just wrong thinking. And, um, you know, it was, it, it was just such a wonderful experience you know having my mind shifted yes I agree I had the same reaction to it and it's also changed the way I see a forest because I see that now as so interrelated and you know this idea that um that trees nurture different species that aren't their own and help sick ones and they even go on feeding a stump after the tree's been killed it's it's quite mind-blowing and it does make you see a forest in a completely different way and to see that just the interrelationships. Um, I thought that was a really powerful aspect of the book. Can we pick up Lucy's question now? Oh, yes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so you might have to do the short oh, version again. The short version was maybe if you're drawn to this book, it's something you're already primed to notice and and is it that modern problem of everybody talking in bubbles to other people who are interested in the same things and so how do we break through those bubbles maybe it's the loggers versus the you know um, the greenies uh, how do you how do you break through those barriers uh, so I guess the short answer is we don't really know and we know that's messy and complicated but um, psychologists and sociologists and 
other people are interested in change think about this a lot. When I've thought about relationships with plants and how they develop over time, I guess ideally you start with a kid. <laughs> um, you know, kitchen gardens, for example, in schools are just a fabulous uh, way of getting children working with plants and thinking about uh, plants in their lives, uh, nature play areas. Um, you know, I'm excited about what we're doing in Melbourne with nature play areas. If you don't have a kid, what do you do? <laughs> that's, that's, that's trickier. Um, we've, we've proposed some strategies that are around um, direct experience that builds empathy and closeness. Um, so inviting people into situations where they relate on an emotional level rather than a fact level um, with trees. And so arts-based approaches, including books and stories, uh, are one of the things that we look to um, for thinking about change. Um, Chris, I don't know if you want to pipe up. He just looked terrified in his eyes. But <laughs> Chris is um, a PhD scholar at the University of Melbourne. He's um, been thinking about the role of stories in um, shifting people's connections with environments. Um, and so he's been thinking about the role of stories and how do we use uh, stories effectively um, and what do we do and don't know about how they can change perspectives. So, Chris, you're going to talk? <laughs> I've been listening really intently and then that, like, 20 seconds before you said, Chris, can you say something, I started thinking something else. <laughs> and now the whole time you've been talking about me talking, I've been thinking about how I was thinking about something else. So. <laughs> Uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> stories. Yes. Stories that persuade. Yeah. Can they be useful in bringing people on a journey to connect with nature? I, th I think the evidence suggests that they can be useful. I think, you know, I'm sitting here listening to people and I don't have this woman's name, but she just explained to us how her perspective on trees has changed completely from wanting them to not exist in her municipality to realising that they may have a place. And I think, you know, for that to come about through a work of fiction speaks to the power of fiction. Um, and it seems like a really obvious thing to say that stories have power because most of our lives revolve around stories. Um, fictional, or sometimes we think they're not fictional. Um, I think there are certain fields that are starting to grasp the usefulness of narrative. Um, in public health, it's used a lot. Um, advertisers are really, really good at using it um, because there's money involved. I think we need to do it a lot more with the environment, particularly as these experiences that are depicted in this book aren't experiences that everybody can have. And more and more we do have uh, places where people are growing up and living uh, without trees, without forests. And I was, I was talking to someone yesterday and they were telling me about the red gum behind the house that's going to be cut down and the eastern rosellas that nest in it every year and they're not going to get to see that anymore. And we were talking about, you know, she's going to move because of that. She's going to move out of that suburb. And when that tree's gone and she moves, the next people that move in won't know any different. And that'll just be normal that that tree was never there. And so these experiences of nature are going extinct. And the only way that we can combat that, I think, is with story. And stories aren't going extinct. 
You know, stories are, are more common than ever. And so I think it's really important that um, we support storytellers who are, you know, doing this amazing level of research that this, this author has done um, that has cre clearly created something very evocative. I don't know if that answers your question. Uh, well, it's very interesting to hear that answer anyway. Um, I think it's interesting also because uh, the author of the novel himself seems to posit, unsurprisingly I guess, since he's a writer, stories as a partial solution to environmental problems. Um, at one point the character of Adam, the psychologist who turns into an eco-terrorist, says story, not argument, will change people's minds. Um, I'm not sure how well that's working in Australia at the moment without government, but um, perhaps it still can. One thing I found interesting about this book, um, given that the author obviously is motivated by, you know, very strong feelings around these, the issues he airs, is um, that the potential solutions to environmental problems he posits in the book, they were pretty damn grim actually, the outcomes of them, and it was kind of depressing really. Um, I mean, there were a, a number of different sort of storylines in it. One of them was peaceful protest. Well, that seemed to achieve nothing. Then some of those protesters turned to eco-terrorism, which inadvertently killed one of the activists. Another um, solution was planting trees, but the character Douglas, who's involved in a massive tree planting program, it turned out to be a form of greenwash and planting seedlings um, just allowed logging companies to increase their annual allowable cut. Then that we have the heroic scientist Patty, who was Catherine's favourite character, and she was an absolute legend, and she um, did her research into how trees communicate and wrote successful books that changed many people's ideas. She started a seed bank, um, but at the end of the book, and yes, spoilers here, um, she's invited to a conference on sustainability and asked what's the single best thing a person can do to help the planet and she appears to publicly commit suicide at the conference. So the only solution really that seemed um, in any way less doomed was Ray, this couple, Ray and Dorothy, who basically decided to let the garden return to forest um, and that seems to work out reasonably well, although the council do want to come and um, dig it all up. Um, so it was, it was a bit of a downer, really. Like it, it was pretty depressing in many ways. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to know what others made of that. Am I being a bit too bleak? Oh, we've got a mic. Hang on. <laughs> I, I found that one of the difficult things of the book because there was definitely that... Can you hold your mic closer? There was definitely that doom and gloom-like hopeless aspect to it. But then there was also the, the trees are much more powerful than us and we're nothing and we're just going to fade away and oh. they will still be here and be the, the power and um, where the energy and the focus is. And I couldn't quite work out which side of the... what he, what. I suppose he was trying to motivate us all to do the right thing, but he was sort of saying, whatever you do, you're just people and you're trivial and the natural world is much bigger than all of us. Yes, which was moving and powerful, but, um, yeah, a tad depressing too. <laughs> I mean, especially if you think of um, 
even things that have happened since he wrote the book. I think it was published in 2018. Well, we've seen the rise of Extinction Rebellion since then, which I find quite an uplifting and in kind of positive um, development. Um, and I like to think the people power can have an impact. Um, yeah, so it's interesting just to even consider that since he wrote the book. Anyone else have any thoughts on, on that question of if, if the book has any hope? Hi, um, I teach fiction actually, eco-fiction <laughs> for all my hey. sins. What a fool. <laughs> but I, I suppose I instruct my students that eco-doom is not the way yes. entirely. You know, eco-doom is a dead end. And I, I do see Richard Powers as a kind of failed idealist in a way because there, are, there is so little room for optimism by the end. <laughs> However, well, I suppose I, I encourage my students to take a double-edged way to avoid the, the sense of the apocalypse. There must be mourning, there must be elegy for things lost. That is true and that needs to be evoked. But there also needs to be simple, common garden variety, plain action alongside the generation of literary texts. Otherwise those literary texts are just mere memory banks. Um, they're not as strong as seed banks in my view, which might slightly contradict Tom up the back or not. I'd, maybe we can talk about that. Yes, that's really interesting. So, do you do you see hope in this book, or do you think he has gone a bit down the well, like uh, everyone the here? Path? I, I suppose I cleave to individual characters like the the marvelous Doctor Patricia Westwood. Is that her name, Westwood? Yeah, Westwood. Westerford. And the the Ray and Dorothy, the the Every People. So I I, th I almost see them as perfect little short stories within the great whinge. <laughs> And I, I'm sorry, but I love those characters very much and I found I was skipping over some of the whingy bits. <laughs> Not because I'm Pollyanna, but because I think we need to be very, very vigilant about eco-doom as an idea and an excess of mourning because it stopped, stops us acting. Well as said. Com as I'm communities. I'm glad that you're out there teaching that to your students. Yes. Because you do have to think about all that time and energy that goes into writing a novel, don't you? And, you know, where, where else could it go? Exactly. <laughs> I, can I just, just jump in and say I didn't find it as gloomy as other people are describing. So I'm wondering if there are some quieter voices here as well. Um, like Quiet Australian. Your, your listing, your listing, yes, was was very good. You picked out lots of sad things that I didn't pick out, but I think I focused on a bigger hopeful picture of. Um, you just get this. I mean, it's the rich sense of connections uh, uh, that I think mean that I never feel alone, and I know that things will change. I I think that that's inevitable. This, you know, our future planet is going to be quite different from what it is now but that doesn't mean it's bad we have a chance and all of those characters had some kind of impact sometimes really tiny and they brought very different kind of skills and knowledge and um, domains of work and action that they 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 worked within I actually found that that sense of connection of people having this you know kind of little tiny effects working towards something potentially better um, left me not feeling hopeless. 
Uh, you're nodding your head over there. Do you, would you like to say something about the, the hope or beauty you found in the book? Well, I think there is this... I mean, it, what's happening to the planet and what the science tells us about what's happening faster and faster is appalling and frightening. And, but, and I think it's not, it's not whinging to say that's what's happening. I think we have to face it and find the connections that help us live through that in a hopeful way. I, having heard Richard Powers talking on various podcasts, he does talk about how you find hope in that scientific reality. And it's about finding new ways to connect to nature. And, and that's, so I think he's, he does have that sense of how do you hang on to the reality and the, and the hope. I don't think it's a either or as maybe the was presenting before. I think those you know, conversations about hope just feel like, you know, the conversations of this time. Andrea at the back is nodding. <laughs> Do you want to add something from your perspective on hope? No, that's great. No, excellent. <laughs> I was just nodding because I feel that this idea of in an era of great change, whether it be, you know, forest destruction or climate change or bushfire, that it seems that we can get lost in the grandness, the greatness, and the overwhelm of that, but that there's so much space for small actions, small things that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, as Kath is saying, to create those connections so that there is this dynamic future that we can greet, we can be a part of, as opposed to just, you know, terrifying, like being terrified walking so it's that hope through small actions and connection that I think is really timely. And I think um, an ex a really good example of that, because although those three examples I gave were, you know, very gloomy, um, there was, for instance, um, one of my favourite characters was the artist Nick. Uh, Nick, is it? Yeah. Um, and right towards the end, after he's lost everything, he's lost... The woman he loves. Um, he had a really depressing stint working in a Amazon-style warehouse, um, packing boxes. Um, he he never he nevertheless is still making art, and he's making political art, and he's leaving those messages everywhere, and they're very strong messages, um, which in some ways are, are probably part of the message that Powers is trying to give us all, which is look closely, pay attention. Um, and that is a beautiful kind of shoot of hope for me at the end of the book. In fact, he was one of my favourite characters um, in it. Mm. I haven't had a chance to read the book yet. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and no, now you don't need to. <laughs> but it's just to say that, you know, taking part doesn't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect at it. You can still be, you know, creating the stories, sharing the work that you need to work while still packing boxes. Like that, that's a part of the, the bigger context of our lives, but the, the little things really do add up. So. Um, I don't know if anyone who has read the book, um, oh, did you want to say something? What do you think Richard Powers would say and do with his grandchildren? 
I think I'm going to hand that one to the psychologist. Did you say what he would do with his grandchildren? What would he say? Say to... And do. And do with his grandchildren. Well, like, I think the big kind of moral messages are, you know, Nick spray paints them (laughs) throughout the novel. Um, Control kills, connection heals. So I think he would be thinking about connection and the final kind of imagery of still. I think he would be trying to get his grandkids to slow down and slow down and see the world from a a different uh, pace than we seem to be rushing through it at the moment and see where that takes you. Yeah, there's a lot of emphasis on time in the novel, actually. Um, And that slowing down is a really um, important part of it. Um, For instance, Patricia, the scientist who is so heroic, um, you know, she's happiest on her own in the forest, paying very, very close attention um, to things. And I think that is positive, and that is in the end. In the end, what Dorothy and Ray—well, Ray has no choice because he has a stroke—but um, their life changes so much, and their ending is is about slowing down and and the things they start noticing in their garden as they let it grow over are, are incredible, you know. And hours can be spent. So I think that is a really important sort of part of the book: that idea of slowing. Um, I think also the book is really interesting and quite challenging in the way it presents a kind of deep time in that, um, you know, there's a a section towards the end where they talk about basically the amount of time humans have been on the earth and if you take an example of 24 hours being since, you know, earth was created, humans have been on it in the last five minutes and, you know, we've really done quite a extraordinary job in messing with the atmosphere in that time but a repeated line in the book that comes from Olivia um, the one of the um, echo warriors is that well I think I've got it written here it's quite a beautiful line which is that trees are the most wondrous products of four billion years of life on earth so there's a lot of taking us into a, a bigger sense of time. There's also, of course, even the way te- trees help us tell the time and the way that their stumps are reared after they've been um, killed um, and the, the time that is even contained in those trees. So I think he has some really interesting points to make to us about time and also probably about what we do with our time because there's a whole other storyline in it which I found a little bit baffling um, about involving this coder, Nile, who um, invents a kind of parallel world and a game called Mastery. Um, so that's basically a fairly kind of telling title and obviously there's a hell of a lot of people spending a hell of a lot of time recreating the world in this game Mastery. Um, so that obviously gets you thinking about how you spend your time today. Um, I don't know if anyone who's read the book had anything to say about him and that world. I was a bit baffled towards the end because he kind of got this team of learners uh, to work, kind of creating another world it seemed, but I couldn't quite work out what was going on there, being a bit of a Luddite. Did anyone um, have any thoughts on 
that character and what was happening with his coders and gamers towards the end of the book? <laughs> I was confused too. I felt like he was creating another universe and wondered if this was um, like meant to be literally like what do we take from this dying? <laughs> oh, but you have a theory. Oh, cool. Excellent. A theory, a theory. Yes, <laughs> we're happy. Okay, hi. I shouldn't have a mic because I haven't read it. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> it feels like Douglas Adams like construct a new world. Oh, hi. <laughs> construct a new world after one has been so like irreplaceably damaged and from what I've heard the tone of the book is desolate and like upsettingly like we've gone too far so maybe the the, the new construction is like that a glimmer of hope you have to rebuild but this is where I haven't read the book so I should <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there is this very weird moment I didn't understand in the book which was when Pat the scientist possibly commits suicide where it, it just branches as though it's like there's these parallel alternative universes that have just been created, which makes me – was one of the points that made me feel like, I think that's what he's doing, yeah. Yeah, I, I think in the same way that the, the book diverges into parallel worlds some, at some point and Nile is creating a world rather in the way that you know, all these tech billionaires are looking at Mars as our alternate world that we're going to go to, escapism, um, where presumably we'll all live in test tubes and be fed through tubes, like, um, while, you know, experiencing a VR version of things we like. That's, it, it was one of the depressing um, conclusions of the book I took from that. <laughs> Thank you for clarifying, James. Oh, we have another. Um, I've just... I don't know. Oh, yeah. I uh, was reading that part today of him with his tech team. And there is a line in it that he says about uh, winning the game or being successful in the game, maybe finding a way through all the shit. And I can't remember what he says, but basically finding solutions to our troubles. So. That might be a more hopeful spin on it, <laughs> that the <laughs> alternate reality or um, diving into that virtual reality might help all the people in there find solutions to the problems that they will inevitably come up against, being a hugely populated land, but that they're trying to find solutions and they're still, they're still that's narrative of success and winning is still through it because that's what they recognise is the money maker. But that might be more hopeful if that's <laughs> what... I haven't gotten past there though. I've just read <laughs> that and then came here. So a lot of spoilers, but... <laughs> um, like... Just maybe just hold it a bit closer. Yeah, is that okay? Yeah. Um, like others, I've found that those passages are really confusing as well. Um, but I got some glimmer of understanding when I listened to this extraordinary hour and a half podcast with, um, with Richard Powers on the Tin House is the name of the magazine. Um, and he talks about having been at Stanford. Um, part of what motivated him to, read, to write the book came out of his experiences of being at Stanford and being close to Silicon Valley and going to parties 
um, with all these crazy people from Silicon Valley who he said something to the effect that um, not a week went by where he didn't hear somebody talking about um, humans getting beyond ageing and living forever. Mm. And so he kind of had, had this sense of the craziness of Silicon Valley um, and, you, you know, contrasting that with more sane um, realities as well, I think. But I'm actually rereading it at the moment to try and understand some of that, particularly Nile's, um role in the book, because the first time I read it I was really confused and also confused about Patricia at the end. So, um, yeah, but interesting to listen to Richard talk about what led him to write the book and particularly that he felt he was tree-blind until he went to the west coast of America. So, very interesting. Yeah, that sounds well worth listening to. So, given that you're reading the book a second time, um, do you have a sort of personal favourite part of the book that um, resonates most for you? Because I think, like, there has been a lot of emphasis on gloom, but it's actually an incredibly beautiful book and it's exquisitely written and, um, I mean, there is a kind of a euphoric element to it as well. Like, I've, I found his writing is ecstatic in describing nature and for me rereading it again this week I didn't want to leave that place when I didn't want it to finish because I was reading it in the city but I felt that I was being transported into um, just this beautiful place and so I don't want to under uh, underplay the beauty of the book. Um, um, as a tragic tree lover um, <laughs> I just found it a joy. Um, it was it was like having parts of my soul recognised for the first time in literature. You know, to find a book that really understood trees and spoke about trees in this deeply emotional way, I just adored. And the you know some of the most powerful images are up in the top of the tree. Um, the big it's a redwood, I think, is it? I can't remember now. Um, Mimas. Yeah, so I haven't got to that in my second reading of it. Uh, all I have is these incredible images of, of the life at the top of the tree. It's just absolutely beautiful. And I also, I've also been a forest activist for a great many years in my life and um, the stories of the forest activists really touched me deeply as well, very deeply. And I, I really loved that he tells that story because so much of what has gone on to try and save forests both here and in other parts of the world is hidden and the great, um, uh, the, the pain that people have gone through is hidden as well. So I've, I've totally loved it. There was almost a documentary detail to those uh, sections of the forest protest, wasn't there? Did that ring really true to you? Uh, totally. And um, what he says about it is that he took lots of actual experiences and put them together and fictionalised them. So, yeah, I think it's... Spot on. Mm. Uh, I think also what you're saying about that world at the top of that giant redwood, it was just so magical, um, them living up there in it for a year. I mean, even though it would have been, of course, ridiculously uncomfortable, windblown and, and almost impossible to endure, it was so beautiful and it was sort of wondrous and romantic, that section of the book. And the ecosystem that lived at the, at, at the top of the tree with the um, flying squirrels 
um, salamander, lizard, huckleberries. Uh, it was just mind-blowing. Mm. I just had a, one other question. I might ask our eco-fiction expert over there if that's all right. Um, uh, I was reading the novelist Barbara Kingsolver, who I, I really love her work. And she reviewed the overstory in the New York Times. And um, in her review, she observed that art still shrinks from environmental brutality as a subject. Um, I wondered about that, and I wonder, is this true in the case of fiction? Um, I mean, there is this growing body of eco-fiction, as we're now calling it, tackling themes to do with the environmental crisis. Um, are there other great novels that tackle environmental degradation and protest in, in, in their own way? Is there something else that we might be missing or, or is King Solver right? Is it, is it actually something that people shy away from writing fiction about? Oh, that's a big question, Susie. Sorry. <laughs> but, uh, um, I think King Solver's being a little bit harsh, actually. I think um, there's, there's a lot of terrific writers out there from Evie Wilde to uh, doing it in a different way looking she's looking at agricultural brutality in all the birds singing um, just going blank on others that I can recommend even Annie Prue writing about um, in a, what's the big Indian book called I've gone blank after my gin and tonic but pardon <laughs> bark skins which is a thousand pages but it really looks at the slow stages of an, and the slow destructive stages of extractive colonialism in America it's epic, but it and but it's always lens through the personal, and on that intergenerational thing um, memorialises that really beautifully, and it's very very sad and toxic, mm. and I I don't know I mean that's interesting that King Silver would maybe she maybe she's it's a provocation that we need to have more books perhaps, The Hunter even the Tasmanian book by Julia. Come on, uh, Lee. Yeah, yeah, and then it's even an early some proto kind of eco-fictional work, which looks at the ins insane race to collect DNA in pristine environments of extinct creatures. You know, so uh, the Tasmanian yeah. tiger. So, and then even someone like Alexis Wright really has that strong. Well, there you are. Yeah. Indigenous writers mm. are really, and I'm just finishing Tara June Winch's The Yield which is an amazing book about loss of language, loss of culture, loss of environment, and those things are terribly implicated for Indigenous people. History is an environmental history. So, you know... Maybe you could tweet that list. Yeah. I don't tweet. <laughs> Maybe I could I tweet that list for you. Susie yeah. Tweet that list. <laughs> that, sorry, that was very yeah. rambling. But no, that's uh, a, there's some great recommendations idea. there, actually. Yeah. I recommend the yield. For, for us... Next, I think. Um, anyone else have anything um, they'd like to say about this quite remarkable book? That's fine if not, because I do think the cheese trolley awaits us. Um, Catherine, oh, sorry. I just want to add one thing to that lady's point about the, um, the amazing scenes in the top of the tree with the activist. There was one really tender moment when the, the cops... There's a moment of rapprochement, you know, where the cops yes. are worried about the people after who are stuck storm. up in the tree after the storm. Yeah. And I thought, there's hope. Yeah. There's a, not a binary where it's us and them always, that actually we're fundamentally humans. And there was 
a relationship that was built up over time between the, the baddies and the, goodie, the goodies and that it was more nuanced, you know, and it wasn't just about power. So there were little moments like that that actually gave me hope just so I didn't sound, don't sound too gloomy. Yeah, no, you're right. And also um, in some of the interactions with the loggers were, were really interesting, I thought. Um, I'm just a bit curious going back to um, your original research, Catherine, um, I'm really interested that um, the loggers that you spoke to uh, referred to the forest as a kind of cathedral. How, how, how did that work with doing their job? Um, yeah, I've just... Well, it's just really interesting. I mean, these are kind of connections that people so, have. No, I think this is a really have. important thing to recognise. So, in the book, if you think about how Richard Powers deals with wood, he is not saying don't cut down trees. That's not no. what it's about. There's a lot of love and respect for wood. Um, harvesting trees is something that's really important in human society. And a logger is part of a system which might have some terrible parts and some parts that are very human. And I suppose the people that I talked to were talking about that moment when you fell a tree quite often and what it means to have this huge thing. I mean, you know, people in our town we knew had been, um, fate, some had been killed or, you know, lost use of their legs um, in this job. So they knew it was really hard. They knew the power of the tree. Um, I, yeah. I, so was there a kind of reverence in their yeah, work? I think it's a, it, it is, you know, it's complex, isn't it? Mm. And I, I think that um, oh, there's so much you could think about, like in terms of how we relate to trees, not, you know, use will always be part of our relationship with trees and with forests. Um, and I think part of what this book is calling us to do is to think about that carefully. Um, you know, there are some points in the story, at different parts of the story, where you see this kind of kinship with trees. And you've mentioned the grandmother trees um, that Vanessa Kavanagh wrote about. You know, we have a lot to learn from societies who relate to plants uh, deeply and who recognise kinship. Um, with plants in a way. And, you know, in those societies, killing trees is necessary also, mm. but it's done with respect. And I, I think recognising those connections, recognising the potential um, for living, including uh, cutting down trees, <laughs> is actually part of what we need to navigate, you know, in, in a hopeful future um, as we go forward. Well, thank you. That's a very hopeful and sane note on which to end, I think. Thank you very much. You're listening to an M Pavilion podcast, conversations about design and the world we live in. For more, visit our archive at library.mpavilion.org and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.